right welcome everybody so this is our first podcast of um 2021 so uh my name is Smita Sinha I'm a nephrologist in um Salford which is in the UK and we have got a couple of really big exciting initiatives to talk about today um I'm first one is on AKF and Roberta what's the second one again yeah we're gonna talk about clinical trials and welcome everybody again. The, this is Roberto Pequafilio, nephrologist, and I'm the deputy chair of the ISN Education Working Group. Nice to be here again. Happy New Year. Okay, so the first segment of our uh, podcast today is going to be on some of the amazing work that the AKF has been doing. So I have Shuchi Anant here from uh, Stanford and Mike Spiegler uh, from AKF, and they're going to talk to us a little bit about the work that they've been doing around undiagnosed chronic kidney disease. I3C stands for a consortium of CKDU collaborators. And if people haven't heard the phrase CKDU, it's uh, it's meant to indicate a chronic kidney disease of unknown cause or uncertain cause occurring in agricultural communities and in hotspots um, um, and identified throughout the world. Um, so that's a disease that we're focusing on um, identifying and helping um, raise the sort of bar for research in that uh, in that disease. Um, and we are a collab. We're sort of a multidisciplinary group of occupational health scientists, environmental scientists, and nephrologists and pathologists trying to really do a deep dive into what potentially could be causing this disease. So it's, it's been around for about two years now, and it's been a really highly productive group at ISM. Um, I just thought, um, I'm obviously British, if you can't tell by the accent. Um, so I hadn't really heard very much about the AKF. So um, I was wondering if, Mike, you'd be able to give us a bit of background on what the AKF is and why you chose to convene a summit on unknown causes of kidney disease. Great. Well, thank you very much. And again, thank you for the invitation to speak to you guys today. So the American Kidney Fund, we're actually, this is our 50th anniversary. So we've been around for for quite some time. Um, We fight on all fronts for kidney patients here uh, in the United States. And we do that on a multitude of ways from prevention activities to uh, education, professional education, research, but also kind of how we got into this summit was uh, our financial assistance program. So we offer direct financial assistance to low-income kidney failure patients uh, in the U.S., mostly dialysis patients. In fact, about one out of every six dialysis patients in the U.S. uh, receive some level of assistance from us. Uh, and, and luckily about 100 of those every month are also getting transplanted too. So I'm seeing data on um, not only you know how they got onto dialysis in the first place, but some of the outcomes um, once they get to transplant as well. Uh, and one of the things that we collect in that database is what caused their kidney failure. And uh, in the US, the CDC says about 5% of cases are of unknown origin. Well, in my database of these patients that are socio- socioeconomically disadvantaged, we have four 14% of them that don't know the cause of their kidney failure. And in looking at that data and seeing how many have lost a transplant before and are back on the list again, uh, there is a difference um, of about 8% between our patients that don't know what caused their kidney failure and those that did know what does that do know what caused their kidney failure. So, uh, you know, a hypothesis is, is it possible that some of these patients, you know, have a rare disease that been, you know, either chalked up to high blood pressure, hypertension, or just was never really found out when they crashed into dialysis and got a transplant and lost that transplant. And, and, and as it turns out, as we started to work on this and talk to some patients, we actually found some patients in which that had happened to them. And this is a pretty unique event. I, I really haven't heard from um, 
an event dedicated to this, especially with the profile of people participating. How did you guys structure the program? Can you can you let us know? I mean, what were the objectives of, of this particular event? Sure. Great. Yeah. So the first thing we did was put together a steering committee. You know, we, we knew there was a problem, um, but we wanted to get some people involved with this that kind of knew maybe how we could go about trying to fix it and who we should invite to the table. So we put a steering uh, committee together of not only uh, some of the re leading researchers in the field, uh, like uh, Ali Garavi, uh, Kakin, but, um, you know, some, some others as well, uh, and then invited patients. And, and we really had a really good, robust group. So they helped us kind of think about who do we want involved in this? Who are people that can help us think through not only what the issues are, but how to solve them, but also could help us actually implement them as we move into the next phase of this uh, event. So um, ISN was one of the groups that was first recommended uh, by our steering committee, and we were very, very fortunate uh, to have Shuchi uh, uh, represent ISN at that. Um, but we really tried to cast a wide net here. So we had uh, some government agencies in the U.S., the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which uh, oversees you know lots of the um, government-run healthcare programs in the country. Um, we had uh, the Veterans Administration, which provides health care to uh, uh, past military uh, service people uh, here in the U.S. as well. Uh, and some of the National Institutes of Health uh, uh, groups that, that oversee uh, kidney disease, patient organizations, advocacy organizations, rare disease organizations, because obviously, if our hypothesis is correct, there's rare disease involved with this, we need their help in doing that as well, as well as industry uh, and others. So uh, we brought this group together. It uh, was meant to be a day and a half when we initially thought of this, and then the pandemic hit. So we had to cram it into four and a half hours virtually, because we felt like that's probably about as much people could take. And we worked through it. And, and I'm sure Shuji can, can uh, attest to this, but I, I, the one comment we got afterwards was we needed more time for the breakout rooms because people just wanted to talk more and more. They were really having great conversations. And those breakout groups, they all kind of focused on the same things, but uh, they were interdisciplinary. So we had patients in there. We had professionals in there, um, both prescribers and allied health professionals, researchers in this area, the advocacy groups. It really led to really uh, fruitful uh, and, and organic and robust discussions in a lot of different areas. So um, now that we've done that, we are working uh, with a, uh, a firm to produce a about a 15 to 20 page roadmap of how we can actually move this forward. Uh, and all of the breakout group participants will have the opportunity uh, to help us through that uh, as we come. Right now, we're looking at about four different main large focus areas. Um, and those working groups will then start to implement the change in that area. So, did, um, so you were a participant. What were your initial impressions about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, the, you know, obviously as a I3C uh, sort of you know, leader and uh, facilitator, I clearly understand the importance of kidney disease of unknown causes. Um, but, and, and that is a, that particular disease is a priority of the ISN as well. But in participating in this, in this work group really helped me understand sort of the wider range of patient perspectives as well as practitioner perspectives. And I would say there were sort of two sort of distinct themes that I identified that were really helpful to, to me personally but hopefully will be helpful as a roadmap as the ISN participates in this as well. Um, one was a patient perspective where they really felt like they don't ever want to be in a situation where, like Mike said, where they're crashing onto dialysis. So they really wanted early detection and early diagnosis and programming 
around that, reaching out to underserved communities in particular. And, you know, the ISN has helped think about some of these things um, um, for, for low resource settings in particular. And so has KDGO recently talked about um, uh, low resource settings and screening um, and just screening of kidney disease in general. Um, so that was one sort of theme that was very that resonated um, throughout the discussion, and the other just sort of the theme was around more education around practitioners to um, you know try to work harder at identifying a specific diagnosis for patients. You know, obviously patients progress and present at dialysis, which happens in a many low resource settings. Our hands are tied except there may be newer molecular tools like um, genetic testing that could potentially assist us. But, uh, you know, it's it's not, we can't make a tissue-based diagnosis, but with in, in complement with early detection, potentially we can make more tissue-based diagnoses so patients would have a better understanding of the cause of their kidney disease and their prognosis. Um, and so that was that was a second theme around, you know, nephrology practitioner um, um, education and, and, and um, providing more agency to uh, to us as a field to try to come up with specific diagnosis. We know that many of our patients fall in the baskets of diabetes and high blood pressure, but potentially want to push beyond that as well. So you've just mentioned high blood pressure, Shuchi, and um, I guess this is a question to you um, and Mike. Hypertension, is it an, actually an unknown cause rather than a disease? You know, I'm sure that generated some conversation during your summit. Um, was there anything that came out about that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, most patients understand it to be a cause, and I think that's how it is um, uh, conveyed to them sometimes. But uh, as we know from the story of ABOL1 nephropathy that, uh, you know, it's likely something that is traveling together with the kidney disease rather than the direct cause of the kidney disease. And that's what, um, you know, different institutions, I think, take different different viewpoints on this. But at our institution, we generally tend to say the blood pressure and the kidney disease are likely traveling together. They're likely feeding off of each other, but they may not be directly causing, uh, the blood pressure may not be directly causing the kidney disease. And that's a complex concept to, to convey to patients. But I think we need to understand that as a field in order for us to push more for specific diagnosis for our patients. I would definitely agree with that. And we actually had a patient involved in the event who um, you, she basically just collapsed at work one day um, with a just a, a terrible headache. She was rushed to the emergency room. Um, she presented in the emergency room with high, with high blood pressure um, and her kidneys had, had failed. So they said, well, you, it's high blood pressure has caused this. She started incident dialysis and just started down the path. Um, she got a kidney transplant. Uh, from her brother, um, and she lost that transplant after about three years because she had FSGS. That is what caused the kidney failure, not the high blood pressure. She had never had a reading of high blood pressure in her life before she showed up to the emergency room. So it seems kind of astounding to me that that was, oh, that's absolutely the cause when there'd never been a history of that whatsoever. But, you know, it's 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 really hard when, and especially in the U.S., where there's terrible uh, electronic uh, health record data moving back and forth, right, to see that, that data when you go to an emergency department. So, um, but there, there's many patients like that. And, and to have someone lose a transplant, I mean, that is just the most tragic outcome of this, um, for sure. So, Mike, how, how would you summarize the key um, takeaways of the meeting? 
Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of work to do. Um, I think there's some general um, learnings that, that came out of that conference that would apply to the international community. I mean, it's many of the things that, that Shuchi talked about. It's 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 patient education. It's, it's really to even ask, what are the questions I should be asking if this happens to me? It's provider education for sure. Um, it is um, some work around just some standardization of genetic testing in general. Um, I mean, at least here in the U.S., you know, 30, 40 different companies. Companies you can get a, a genetic test from, but there's really no kind of standardization of how that's done um, or, or guidelines on, on the quality of the results that are coming out of that. And then, you know, a, a problem rather unique to the United States is making sure that there's actually coverage for this. Um, you know, the, the finance, insurance coverage uh, at all levels from, from government to private insurance, uh, there are issues with getting the, these tests uh, covered uh, and offered to patients at the right time in the right place. So um, those are the, the the very large, broad uh, areas we're looking at now where we're digging into really some concrete steps we can take to address those. What are you going to do next? You know, you've done all this work. What's next? Because you're going to have to cover... Uh, the low middle income countries as well as the US. US. Right. So that's a big roadmap. <laughs> right. It truly is. So, I mean, we're looking at this roadmap as really thinking about what are some, some short-term success points we can have and what are some long-term. I mean, you know, to have guidelines change, right, whether they're the KDGO guidelines or uh, the KDOKI guidelines, whatever they might be, I mean, that's a process in and amongst itself, right? So, uh, KDGO is also involved in this process too. Um, we will be setting these working groups um, in the next probably 60 to 90 days in those focus areas as defined, uh, and then we will get to work. Uh, we do have some seed funding for the initial phase of this. Uh, we'll be working with some of our supporting organizations and partners to, to build more of that, um, but we do have enough to jumpstart this at a pretty good pace um, over the next 90 days or so. And Shuchi, how, how do you see the role of ISN in this process of implementing the, you know, the results of the meeting? I mean, I think we can certainly play a role in the uh, patient education and also around some, you know, ISN has a uh, large advocacy role and we have um, some buy-in from the World Health Organization. So I think um, they're integrating a sort of a, a, a standardized and simplified algorithm for kidney disease screening um, and that makes sense for, for low and middle income countries would be something that ISN can contribute um, um, very productively and very um, you know specifically. But um, the other question of you know provider or, or just sort of like thinking as a field as attempting to get more diagnostic data for our patients, I think that's something that ISN can help with as well because we do have an international reach. We do work with international cohorts where there's a diversity of causes likely of kidney disease. And you know, um, Roberto, the we have the INET, um, which is a cohort of, of uh, international cohorts of kidney diseases, uh, kidney patients with kidney diseases internationally. And so, you know, we can work with them or with the I3C to try to really advocate for studying causes of kidney disease in diverse settings so that we can help inform the field as a whole as to what are potential specific causes. And, you know, with I3C in particular, we're thinking about occupation and environmental, which are traditionally considered non-traditional or, or um, unusual or rare causes of kidney disease, but clearly are occurring at um, potentially occurring at a really high rate in uh, some some settings. So 
we really can advocate for um, a higher level and higher quality of research to try to identify causes of, of kidney disease in international cohorts. So there's a lot coming in the next 90 days is the take home message. So we need to keep watching. Um, and where can we find that information just to signpost our listeners, you know, if they want to keep up to date with what you guys are doing, um, where should where should they go? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, directly for the summit, you can find kind of the, the thoughts behind how we got there at summit.kidneyfund.org. Uh, you can find more information on our website in general, just at kidneyfund.org. But that's what we'll start posting things as they come up as we get the drafts out and we put it up for the comment period. Um, that's It'll all live there. Well, Mike and Shuji, that was, that was really wonderful. Congratulations for the initiative and looking forward to the, you know, the output of the meeting and the dissemination. Thank you so much for participating. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. less than $20 a month, you can become a full ISN member and access ISN's well-known scientific journals and online education. Full ISN membership allows you to participate in ISN's many initiatives and granting programs. Find out more at www.theisn.org. Okay, so this is the second segment of our podcast today, and uh, we are very happy to have two of the most important clinical trialists in nephrology currently. Um, So for that part of our podcast, we'll have David Wheeler uh, from the UK and Hido uh, Hersping from the Netherlands. Hido is the uh, chair of the ACT Advancing Clinical Trials in Nephrology Working Group from the ISN. And he does also part of the group and leads some of the most important clinical trials that have been recently developed in the area of nephrologists. And um, we'll have um, a very nice discussion today about current scenario of clinical trials in nephrology and the role of ISN in building capacity and getting everybody involved in the future of this uh, important studies. Uh, David, can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about um, uh, what ACT is and uh, its main objectives? Yeah, thanks, Roberto. Um, so ISN ACTS is a, is, is a group with, within the ISN. It's a committee of the ISN. Um, ACTS stands for Advancing Clinical Trials. Um, and, and the remit of this group is to enhance clinical trials in nephrology so that um, more investigators um, come on board uh, with, with running clinical trials. Clinical trials become more readily accessible um, to investigators around the world, and we get more patients into clinical trials so that we can answer some of the key questions um, that we have around the management of chronic kidney disease. The, the ISN Acts group's been around for around about five or six years now and has undertaken a, a number of projects over that time. And Hido, you've been involved not only in this initiative, but in so many uh, trials that um, are ongoing or trials that are being planned and uh, some of the trials that release results. How how do you see the nephrology environment when it comes to uh, trials nowadays? Yes, thank you for the question, Roberto. My name is Hido Heerspink. I'm a clinical trialist from the Netherlands. 
I see that the trial environment is changing in in kidney diseases. Traditionally, we have been very we have been lagging behind in terms of the number of clinical trials that have been conducted in terms of the quality of clinical trials. But I see that there's a change. There's more people who are interested in being involved in clinical trials and running academic clinical trials. There are more and more patients who are interested to participate in clinical trials to help other patients in the future. So I, I foresee a bright future for clinical trials in nephrology. One of the things that I find interesting is that we're starting, we almost seem a little bit behind the curve on clinical trials compared to our cardiology colleagues. And they seem to have their trials sorted, their endpoints sorted. Um, you know, how, how do we think we'll be dealing with that moving forward? Are we going to have race instead of MACE? Or I don't know, um, are we going to have our renal specific endpoints? Is that something ACT will contribute towards? And do you think it will address some of the issues we've seen with some of the RCTs uh, that have come out recently that have excited the community? So I'm very happy to, to comment on that. I mean, I think, yes, we, we do need to sort out our endpoints. Um, we, we need to, to, to do that for ourselves and for the regulators who, who obviously um, watch these trials and, and, and interpret the data coming from these trials. I think there have been some efforts to do that. Um, the, the ISN held a consensus conference back in Vancouver uh, in, in, this, in, in January 2020 um, and invited a number of individuals to that meeting to try and develop a broad consensus on what endpoints should look like in clinical trials. There were regulators there, there were patients there. And so I think we're beginning to get our act together. And of course, the ISN ACTS group supports um, all of those um, activities. But we're not there yet, as you say, and uh, we've still got a long way to go in terms of streamlining um, you know, the, the outcomes for trials. We, we need um, different outcomes in early trials where we're looking at um, smaller numbers of patients, perhaps rarer diseases, new drugs compared to the, the bigger studies in, say, diabetic nephropathy, where we've got bigger numbers of patients and can look at things like starting dialysis and, and so on. Um, but we're beginning to, I think, move in the right direction now as, as a specialty. And I agree with that, David. And in addition to harmonizing endpoint definitions, we need much more to stimulate clinical trials in nephrology. We need more investment from industry and governments. And I think with these positive trials over the last two years, Credence, Sonar, Fidelio, DEPA, CKD, I think there's more interest in conducting clinical trials in nephrology. But we only, we are not, should not only rely on investments from industry, I think we also need more investments from governments. Given that chronic kidney disease and the prevalence and incidence of chronic kidney disease is still increasing, but we also have to think about capacity building. We should not only we should teach people. We need more capacity, more people to run these clinical trials. We need networks, networks of people who work together to conduct clinically meaningful clinical trials on, on these endpoints that David just discussed. And that's what cardiology is doing as well. They have those global networks and we should do the same in nephrology. And finally, we should also think about, I already mentioned it, education and in particular education of investigators in low middle income countries. I think the ISN is already working on that and should definitely proceed with that because that will be an important area for the future, I believe. Yeah, in line with this, uh, with the focus on building capacity, 
Um, the ACT group has produced a, 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 a tool to help the community to, you know, set up clinical trial units and, you know, just get, get a primer on how to get started. David, can you, can you comment on the toolkit and how, this, uh, how do you envision that this will be um, important to um, trigger, you know, uh, interest of the community and help to get people who are not involved uh, started uh, organizing clinical trials in their regions? No, thanks, Roberto. I mean, I think, you know, we want the trials to recruit in, in all regions. We want the patient population in the trials to be representative of the patient population we manage globally. Um, and so we're very keen on getting, you know, trials up and running in, in countries that perhaps have not done trials before. So one of the um, projects that the ISNX group undertook was to was to collect together in one place um, on, on, a, on, on some web pages, a collection of useful information for those who wanted to conduct trials in, in chronic kidney disease. Um, so this is um, what we call the toolkit, the ISN ACTS toolkit. It's available via the ISN website um, and is a collection of resources for those who uh, want to set up and, and run trials. Many of the resources are simply signposts um, to other places. We, we've, we've linked up various web pages um, through uh, through this this um, website. Um, so some of the um, resources, as I say, are, are in other places. But the point of the, the the website was to collect together in one place. Um, the the resources that uh, investigators needed um, for for kidney trials and and I hope we've succeeded to do that. And do you think Hido touched on it earlier? Actually, given that um, we've had so many, well, so many, we've had a few successful RCTs mm. now. Um, is there an opportunity to almost market clinical trials using those successes, um, particularly the diabetic nephropathy? Um, studies, and I know both of you have been involved in those. So I'd be really keen to get your views on what it felt like to produce a successful trial. <laughs> um, producing a successful trial is, of course, fantastic, and being able to make impact for patients is really, really satisfying. And and I, I think that with those successes, new ideas come up, and new hypotheses can be generated. Because one of the important questions to me is. Some people believe that, that we have solved the issue of diabetic kidney disease because we now have SGLD2 inhibitors, we have a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, perhaps the thelin receptor antagonist in the near future. But the question is, how can we combine these different drugs for which patients, which combination of drugs? So we can, we have a menu of drugs becoming available. And now the question is, how can we tailor these drugs to patients so that we can treat individual patients in the best possible way. That will be an important question for, for the future because there's still residual risk left. If you look in the clinical trials, there's still many patients, even on optimal treatment and with the new therapies that require kidney replacement therapies. So we, to me, we haven't solved the issue. We, we need to continue and the combination therapies tailored to individual patients will be the future. So we can use these positive trials to market clinical trials and then focus on different combination therapies in my view. It's a big challenge for the um, organizations that are, they are trying to put up uh, guidelines on treatment, right? With this dynamic field. Yeah. 
how, how do you guys see that the that, that this will be um organized in the near future new trials coming up and the guidelines changing i mean the community community might be confused about you know all this new information and all the different recommendation that changes all the time i think we're in a great position now particularly with diabetic kidney disease because we've got several therapies that work and and we're, we're a little bit like the heart failure doctors now you know we've got a range of therapies that we can use and i think the clinician will need um help and support and guidance as to you know what order to start drugs in and which patients to give which drugs to and i think guidelines will do that i think new guidelines tend to be more dynamic um i, I know that the kdiga guidelines are now web-based they're, they're updated more regularly and when new trials come along um the the recommendations are regulated in in a far more timely fashion um, compared to, to previously. So we need to keep the guidelines alive and up to date. Um, and we need to, uh, we need to, to, to talk, to, to disseminate the results of these trials um, to, to colleagues so that they, they understand that the, the benefits and risks of these therapies. But at the other hand, David, and I'm very happy that these international guidelines are dynamic and I'm completely in for it. At the other hand, nephrologists, for example, in the Netherlands, they look at the Dutch guidelines and the Dutch guidelines are unfortunately much less dynamic and, and, and they are being made every five years. And, and that's so, so although these global guidelines may change, we also have to work on the local guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. And, and empower the patients as well to, to ask where their treatments for chronic kidney disease are and, and how they're going to get them. We haven't talked yet about patient involvement, and I think patient involvement in future clinical trials is really important. We, we had a meeting with different stakeholders, including patients in early December, talking about clinical trial designs for early stages of chronic kidney disease. And at that meeting, again, became extremely clear that patients need more education about clinical trials. What are clinical trials? Why are they so important? Patients were saying, we didn't know that they were important until we we got educated and realized that this is the only way to progress and improve outcomes for our patient groups. So we have to involve them. We have to educate them, as David just said. So I'm just thinking about ACT and these trials. Um, If guidelines aren't changing as dynamically as we'd like, then we need those clinicians to be part of that network so they're not dependent on guidelines because they're going to be research and trial active. They can drive those changes locally. And then, Hido, you brought in the patients as well. So that combination of expanding clinical trial networks and patient involvement could be what we need to really drive um, clinical trials forward. Um, yeah. yeah. I do well, but we have to realize that not every the clinicians are also busy and, and have other commitments and, and not every investigator has time and capacity to participate in clinical trials, even mm-hmm. though. So we have to be realistic, <laughs> of course, uh, although I would have loved to involve everyone. And, and, yeah. I know you guys have been super busy the last uh, a few months with the release of uh, of this new information and also planning for new studies. But did you guys have a chance to uh, feel how the community is receiving this? Is nephrology ready to take all of this new information and opportunities to change clinical practice? 
Uh, do you want me to take that one? Uh, you know, I think I think there's different types of nephrologists, and and I've got colleagues who are who are um, you know who manage transplant recipients, who manage dialysis patients, who manage rare diseases, and they're not all interested in this. We we have to understand that not not all not all nephrologists are interested in diabetic kidney disease, and and I think. You know, we work in a multidisciplinary world now, and we are going to have to link up a little bit more than we are if we're going to improve patient outcomes. So, you know, I, I want the patient to get the SGLT2 inhibitor, whether the patient sees the diabetologist for his diabetes, the cardiologist for his heart failure or her heart failure, or, or the nephrologist for their declining kidney function. Um, and, and I don't want there to be too many barriers in the way. And, and I think we have to be broader now in, in, in our approach to these patients. But I think, as I say, a lot of nephrologists, um, you know, hide away in, in super specialized areas and, and won't necessarily be, you know, advocates for SGLT2s um, in, in patients with diabetic chronic kidney disease. After all, this is a diabetic drug, you know, so it's, it's going to be, it may be that, that we're slow to adopt it. Well, David Wheeler, um, you know, has been two of the most um, important trialists uh, uh, in the nephrology world. Thanks so much for talking to us uh, today and uh, congratulations for the success of your recent work. Thank you very Thank you. much for having Thanks, us. Thanks, Roberto. Thanks. The Eisen Global Kidney Care Podcast is made possible by the ongoing support of Eisen members. Become a member today and let us together advance kidney health and knowledge worldwide. Go to the ISN.org to start your journey.